You're listening to the Grace Church Podcast, a weekly podcast dedicated to bringing you biblical guidance to life's most important issues. We want to thank you for joining us for this week's message. We pray you find strength and encouragement as we learn from God's truth together. For more information, go to visitgracechurch.com. How are you today? Awesome. Well, my name is Shannon. I have the privilege of being the Grace Groups Director here at Grace Church. Uh, today, we are starting a brand new series. Uh, I'm really excited about this series. It's only three weeks long, uh, but I love the idea. I love the premise of this particular series. And so it's a series that we're simply calling Room to Room. Now, before we go any further, uh, by a show of hands all across our campuses, whether you're joining us in the venue or maybe you're online or maybe you're in Olathe this morning, if you are, just thank you for being a part of our worship services. But show of hands, how many of you have ever done any type of remodeling or renovating project in a house before? Okay, almost all of you. Whoa, that's a lot of them. My wife and I have done a number of uh, ones over the years as well. In fact, some of our favorite uh, TV shows are those house flipping shows. You guys know what I'm talking about? The ones where there's a couple buys a house, it's dilapidated, they fix it up, they sell it for a profit, then they go straight to the marriage counselor because they almost lose their marriage over it, right? Uh, and let me ask this. Uh, for those of you that raised your hands, how many of you would say that when you were remodeling, the project ended up being a little bit more time, energy, or money than you had originally anticipated? Okay, again, most hands. I've never heard anyone say to me, you know, that remodeling project was way easier than I thought it would be. All right, it just never goes that way. I remember when I was a kid, my dad had this side business remodeling uh, insides of homes, doing custom cabinetry and stuff like that. And I would always help him, uh, mainly because I was a kid and I had no choice whatsoever. Uh, and so I'm not kidding when I say this. I remember my parents fighting and arguing because my dad somehow always managed to underestimate the amount of time and m- money it would take to remodel the inside of the house. And so as a result, I'm fairly certain he lost money on most of the projects he took. Uh, which means technically my dad was running a ministry, not a business. would have been nice if my mom knew that. might have saved some tension. Uh, but thankfully, the good news is for those of us that persevere, you know that you know if your marriage survives and you don't go bankrupt in the process, that uh, if you persevere through it, the end result will be worth it, right? It will end up being better than what you started with. And so that's actually the premise of this series. You see, just like our homes, we have areas, we have rooms in our lives that over the years become a little bit stale, a little bit outdated, need some attention. I mean, let's be honest, we all have areas in our life that we need to work on. Anybody perfect here today? Okay, I always get somebody to raise their hand by accident. Okay, thank you for not raising your hand. All right, and so we all have work. We all need, we have things in our lives we need to work on. And so because of that, uh, we need some remodeling. We need some renovating going on in our, maybe even some overhauling. Unfortunately, just like homes, sometimes it takes more energy, effort, time than we thought it would but thankfully, the end result is always worth it. We end up better for it. Uh, and so the, over the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about specific rooms uh, in our lives and what they represent. And this weekend, we're going to be talking about the kitchen. Now, for anyone who's done the remodeling, you know that the kitchen is always one of the best rooms to start with because not only does it add, it, it's a good investment, right? It adds good value to the home, uh, but also it um, is, in my mind, one of the most important rooms in the house as well because it's where we go to eat. It's where we're fed. It's where we're nourished and we can grow strong and healthy. How many of you like to eat today? Okay, I'm at the right church. Good. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Hebrews. We're going to start reading in chapter number five today. Uh, We're going to start in verse number 11, actually. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, the ushers would love to give you one. Just raise your hand up high and you can use that one today. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, by all means, please take that one home as a gift from us to you. The only thing we'd ask is that you 
drop $10,000 in the offering a little bit later, uh, just to offset the cost, all right? Is it too early for sarcasm? Okay, all right, all right, I'll try to lay off. Let's start reading here in Hebrews 5. We're going to start reading in verse number 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Let's take a moment and pray. Lord, I thank you for the power of your word as we read your word today. Lord, I pray your word would read us, that you would begin to do something amazing inside of us. Lord, not what happened last week or the week before, but we want a fresh move of, of you in our hearts today. So transform us from the inside out. Lord, if we walked in here expecting nothing, we just might find that. And so, Lord, raise our expectations, knowing that you are able and we are not. Lord, move in our heart today. We ask this in your name. And everyone said, amen. Uh, So some of you might know, uh, I have three children. My wife and I have three children, ages 12, 11, and 7. Uh, Actually, the two oldest are 10 and a half months apart. Uh, And so just like your kids, I'm sure, my kids each have their own individual uh, likes and dislikes, especially when it comes to the topic of food. You know what it's like with kids and food, right? And so, for instance, my oldest daughter, Trinity, she's 12. She is all about macaroni and cheese and ramen noodle soup. And so even though she's in seventh grade, she's eating like a poor college student already. So it bodes well for her future. Uh, then there's my son, Corbin. He's 11. He's a typical 11-year-old boy. He is all about pizza, all about pizza. In fact, I was the, very similar when I was young. In fact, he's very much like me when I was young because he also, in my mind, has the um, privilege of being the messiest kid I have ever seen. Uh, you can put a piece of pizza in front of him and, no kidding, walk out, come back a minute later, and half that piece of pizza will somehow be smashed on the back of his head. I'm not sure how he does that. And then some of it will be hanging from the ceiling, you know. And so he's like, I didn't do anything, right? Something freaky with the pizza we order, I guess. And so then there's my youngest daughter, Shiloh. Now, she's seven years old. Some of you might know her. She's bopping around here all the time. Now, if you know anything about Shiloh, you know that she's about one food in particular, and she is passionate about that food, and that's cheeseburgers. She loves cheeseburgers. I'm not exaggerating. Since three years old, we gave her her first cheeseburger, and there's no turning back from that point. All right, she's launched cheeseburgers all the time. In fact, I'll pick her up from school. Some of the first words out of her mouth generally are, Daddy, can we get a cheeseburger? It doesn't help there's a McDonald's right next to the school either, right? Uh, I'll pick her up from here at the church, and on her way home, Daddy, can I get a cheeseburger? This last uh, Tuesday, we were at the Oetha pool here. Daddy, can I get a cheeseburger while we're swimming? Uh, she can be sitting at the kitchen table eating a cheeseburger, and she's asking me, Daddy, can I get a cheeseburger tomorrow? Because she's lining up her next cheeseburger while she's still eating her current one. All right, so she is crazy about that. I am not kidding at all. Uh, a couple months back, though, something kind of weird happened. Uh, she came home from school one day, and she did not ask me for a cheeseburger. I thought, well, that's a little odd, you know, maybe taking the day off. Okay, that can happen, right? Uh, so the next day rolls around. She comes off for school. She didn't ask us for a cheeseburger again. So at this point, I turn to my wife. I'm like, okay, we need to sell our stock at McDonald's because it's about to plummet fast, all right? So sell, sell, you know? So the third day comes along, and again, she did not ask us for a cheeseburger. And so now we're really weirded out. And it was on that third day, we also happened to notice that she had these dark circles under her eyes, and she was, you know, a little bit more lethargic than usual. And then also she was running a low-grade fever. We took her temperature. Uh, And so like any good parent, we took her to the doctor, uh, find out what was going on. And you know the first question the doctor always asks when you go and you're not feeling well? 
So how's your appetite, right? Somehow that's always the first question. How's your appetite? And so he said, how's her appetite? We're like, well, she's, you know, not eating cheeseburgers. And since he knows her, he's like, whoa, this is serious, right? And so it turned out she had an infection and not only caused her to lose her appetite, but she actually lost two pounds over the course of that week too. Uh, and so that's not good for a seven-year-old girl, but they give her antibiotics and, and that's all good. But here's my point. It was the sickness. It was that infection she had that was killing her appetite, And even for a short time, it was stunting her growth as well. And so interestingly, this is the same thing that happens to us spiritually as well. Because here's the deal. We know we are more than just physical beings, right? We are spiritual beings. In fact, I have friends that would not call themselves Christians. They wouldn't, they're not professing Christians or anything like that, but they would agree with that statement that we are spiritual beings. They know we have souls, right? But as Christians, we know that we have been created with this innate desire inside of us to know our maker. We, we have this hunger to know our creator, right? In fact, we call that the God-sized hole inside all of us in our popular culture. You know, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 3, he says that God has set eternity on the hearts of mankind. And so we have this hole inside of us. We, we're created to know our maker, to know our creator. But unfortunately, somewhere along the line, this sickness called sin came into our life and it messed everything up. It distorted our spiritual appetite. And so now, instead of satisfying our spiritual hunger on God and God alone, we run around trying to satisfy our spiritual hunger with lots of other things in life. People, places, things, relationships, money, possessions, whatever the case might be, they never satisfy that the way that they should. And as a result, it severely stunts our spiritual growth. And so knowing that, when it comes to our spiritual growth today, Listen, there have been volumes of books written on the topic of spiritual growth, uh, countless sermons. I've preached on uh, uh, spiritual growth many times, but technically, I don't think it's accurate for us to say today that we have a problem with our spiritual growth. I think it's more accurate for us to say today that we have a problem with our spiritual appetite because it's our appetite that fuels our growth. Right? It happens to us physically and it happens to us spiritually. And so just like our physical hunger can cause us to grow physically and a lack of physical hunger will stunt our growth, will regress, will even lose weight. Lack, our, our spiritual hunger is what causes us to grow spiritually. But a lack of spiritual hunger can cause us to stall, to regress, to become stagnant in our faith. Because the reality is if we're not hungry, we're not going to eat. And if we don't eat, we're not going to grow. So if you're taking notes today, just write this simple truth down. A lack of spiritual growth is caused by a lack of spiritual appetite. A lack of spiritual growth is caused by a lack of spiritual appetite. And so really the question we need to ask ourselves is the same one the doctor would ask us if we were going to him if we weren't feeling good today. And it's this, how is your spiritual appetite doing today? Are we hungry for the things of the Lord? Are we craving the things of God? Is it our desire to eat at his table and his table alone? Listen, nobody has to remind me to eat food, right? I've never gone a week or or even a month and just said, oh my goodness, I forgot to eat this month. But why do we constantly have to remind ourselves to eat spiritually, right? And so any conversation talking about spiritual growth has to start with knowing what's going on with our spiritual appetite. And so knowing that as we look at our passage today here in Hebrews 5, why I love this passage is because it's using this imagery of food, right? And, and I believe this passage teaches us several things about our spiritual hunger. And so real quick, for those of you that might not know a lot about the, um, the book of Hebrews, it was a book that was written to a group of Christians who were basically straying away from this idea of the deity of Christ, And so, like, that Jesus was truly God. 
You know, so maybe a good person, a prophet, had lots of good things to say, but they weren't quite sure if he was truly God. All right, it doesn't sound that different than our culture today, does it? And so then in chapter 5, the chapter we're in today, verses 1 through 10, the ones preceding our verses, the author has just given this beautiful discourse, this, this description of how Jesus is our high priest how he's become the source of our eternal salvation, how he is our atonement. He's sacrificial lamb for our sins. And now in verse 11, it's like the author suddenly just changes tone and he takes this deep breath and it just lets out this, you guys ever do that when you're frustrated? You just go, you guys do that with me? Let's practice it. One, two, three, ready? You guys do that really well, okay? And it's like he lets out this grunt that he's really frustrated. And he says this. He goes, it's like, there's so much more I have to say. There's so much more that we can learn. There's so many truths and treasures to uncover about God. But unfortunately, you have all become dull of hearing, is what he says. Dull of hearing. And in the Greek, what that literally means is lazy and lethargic and negligent. In fact, that's, in the Greek, that sometimes is used in the context of athletes, as in you're really out of shape to be an athlete, all right? And so basically, these Christians were spiritually out of shape. They were dull of hearing, and because of that, they weren't able to grab the deeper truths that this author wanted to teach, right? And so he's saying here is that something was wrong with their spiritual hunger. So if you're taking notes, write that down. That's the first thing that we see here is that our hunger is literally what defines us. Our hunger is ultimately what defines us as people. Or even our lack of hunger is what defines us as well. In fact, let's do this. Real easy way for us to illustrate this today. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to say a name that many of you know, and you tell me what that person, what hunger, passion they have in life, what they're known for. All right, and so we can do this real easy. We'll start with someone simple. Let's start with Michael Phelps. What's the passion that he is best known for in life? Swimming. Okay, you guys know that one, all right? So he's an amazing swimmer, all right? Let's, let's go to the next one. How about, we talked about these individuals last week. How about the Wright brothers? What passion are they known for in life? Flying. You guys are on it, all right? How about this next one? Martin Luther King. What is, what's he defined by his life? What's he defined by his passion? Civil rights. Bam, okay. How about this? Let's go into scripture. The Apostle Paul, what would you say defines him? What passion defines him? The gospel, preaching, I heard some of you say it, right? And planting churches, he was passionate about the gospel. All right, how about this? Let's bring this a little bit closer to home. All right, let's take our our senior pastor, Tim Howie, for instance. What passion, what hunger defines him? Somebody said it. Okay, let's see. All right. He's going to get even for me for that one right there. Let's go take our executive pastor. You guys know Brian Gann? All right, what passion, what hunger defines his life? Okay. You guys, I'm just going to say this. Have you ever seen him without a long sleeve shirt on? I'm just throwing it out there, okay? Just throwing it out there. How about one more? Um, our worship pastor, Ben Obasado. What's, he, what's his passion? What's he known for? Okay, there we go. All right. So listen, even my attempts to mislead you about their passions, their hungers, you guys know what they're defined by, aren't you? You know what passions define them. And so that's my point. And so what we see in our passions here is these Christians were known for being spiritually dull of hearing, that they lacked hunger entirely. And so the question is this that I have for you. What kind of hunger defines you today? What kind of passion are you known for? 
Or better yet, let's, let's think of it this way. What would those that are closest to you, who, co-workers, friends, family, what would they say your passion is today? That you're known for, that you're defined by? Because listen, just because we say that we're passionate and hungry for something doesn't mean that our life reflects it. I can say that I'm, I'm a passionate Chiefs fan, but if my life doesn't reflect it, then clearly something's wrong. Or, or maybe let's just do it this way. What kind of hunger or passion do you want to be defined by today? You have a choice. My youth pastor, when I was young, used to challenge us. He used to say, when you're dead and gone someday, and what are the people going to put on your gravestone? Like, what's your legacy going to be? What are they going to say about you? And I still think about that to this day. I don't know about you, but I want to be known for the kind of hunger that, for instance, David had in the Old Testament, right? It looks, Psalm 63, this is what he wrote. He said, God, you are my God. I love the possessiveness of that. I earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. It hungers. It's, it longs for you. David is writing this, and you know he is passionate. He is hungry for God. And what's so remarkable to me, though, is in this passage, he was probably in the wilderness in Judah when he wrote this, and yet he's writing about his hunger and passion for God when there was very little water or food with him. So I'm not sure about you, but if I was there in the wilderness, I'd probably write about my hunger and passion for cheeseburgers or soda at that point. But he's still writing about his passion and hunger for God, even while he was physically hungry. And mind you, and I know some of you know the story of David, but here's a guy that slept with another man's wife and then murdered the husband just to try to cover it up. And yet... He is known, he is, he's mentioned more than once in scripture, he's described as being a man after God's own heart. That boggles my mind. You know what I love about that? Is that God would not allow David to be defined by his sin. That David, that, that God did not want him to be defined by his sin, but instead he was defined by his hunger, by his passion, by his desire for God. A man that longs after my heart is what he says. So listen, if you're here today and you've got failures, you've got mistakes, you've got regrets that you've made maybe time and time again in your life, listen to me when I say this. Your failures do not have to define you. Your sin do not, does not have to define you. In fact, write this down if you're taking notes today. As God's people, we are not defined by our failures. We are defined by the one who paid the price for our failures. We are not defined by our sin. We are defined by the one who paid the price for our sin. Listen, we are so quick to wear that label of failure. We're so quick to label others as a failure. But you know what? A failure is not a person. A failure is an event. It is a point in time. Maybe some of you know this, but even in the Old Testament, the name for the enemy can often be translated accuser, which is exactly what the enemy loves to do. He loves to accuse us. He loves to remind us about our past, about our sin, about our failures. But Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, he says, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so in other words, if we're not being condemned by God, who can dare stand before us and point a finger at us? Who can accuse us? Who can remind us? No one can. He has set us free. Amen? God doesn't want us to be defined by our failures and our sins. He wants us to be defined by our passion and our hunger for him. He wants to call us men and women after his own heart. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You know what I love about that is that Jesus uses this terminology, this imagery of hunger and thirst because he knows that not only does our hunger define us, 
But he knows that our hunger does something else. Our hunger drives us. It motivates us. In fact, that's our second point today, if you're taking notes. Our hunger, ultimately, one, number one, it defines us, and secondly, it drives us. Let me ask this. Have you ever had a taste for something, like a food, that you just had to have, like you just got a taste for it, whether it's like barbecue, or maybe it's cheesecake, or sardines? Has anyone ever had a taste or a crave for sardines in the history of mankind, right? You ever had a taste for something and you just had to have it? I remember my wife was pregnant. She had this taste, this craving for burritos during her first pregnancy. And so I drove all around town looking for the best burritos. Uh, Funny story. Let me show this real quick. I remember back when I was a poor college student, I'd be up studying late often many nights. And uh, for some reason, I would always get this craving, this hunger for uh, Panera bagels, Right, or cinnamon crunch bagels in particular, because those are my absolute favorite ones. But of course, it, Panera was always closed by that time because I was always up late. Uh, and, but there was this one time that I really, really wanted one. So I decided I'm just going to go down to Panera anyway. It was 1030 at night. I knew it was closed, but I'm just going to go down there and just see what, what I can get. All right, and so I go down to Panera and I start knocking on the glass. I still see a bin full of cinnamon crunch bagels. I still see employees inside walking around. And so I knock on the glass and right away, several of them turned around and pointed at the clock and said, we're closed. I could read their lips. We're closed. I'm like, mm, I want a bagel. And so I'm not deterred at this point, so I decided to try the sympathy card, all right? And so I stood there, and I put on my long face and my puppy dog eyes and my boo-boo lips, and it worked on my mom at one point. I thought, maybe it'll get me a bagel, right? And so I stand there. You know what happened? Nothing. They didn't even look at me. They could care less if I'm playing that card. I'm like, okay, rejected, all right? And so I decided this time, I'm going to try, I'm going to go cold, hard cash, so I had $10 to my name. I pulled it out of my pocket. I slap it on the window because I want to make sure that they hear me. And several of them turned around. And then a couple of them then pointed to the register, which was wide open with nothing in it. And I could read their lips. The register's closed. I'm like, I want a bagel. And so I last ditch effort, I decided to take my face and smash it up against the window My big German nose, everything. I just made the most contorted faces possible, and it totally worked because they all started laughing. I think they're laughing at me, not with me. I don't care, but one of the guys came around to the door, and he said, okay, man, what do you want? And I'm like, I want one of those bagels. He goes back in. He comes back out with a whole bag of them. So score, right? There you go. There you go. Thank you very much. My dignity was worth roughly a bag of bagels, all right? But that's what our hunger will do. Our hunger will drive us. It will motivate us. It will, it's even aggressive at times. Do you guys know that we in, invented a word recently for hunger? Like it's, it's called hanger, hangry, right? We take hunger and, and hungry and angry and put them together. And we say sometimes like our kids are hangry. When they're really hungry, they get angry. I think us as parents, we get hangry when we're telling them they're hangry, right? I, did you know that you could be spiritually hangry? I have this theory. I think that people run around these days trying to fill that, that, that spiritual void inside of them with so many different things. They're never turning to God. And I think some people are just spiritually hangry. They're running around. They're frustrated. They're never happy. Uh, and, and just, I, I kind of think that's what's happening with them. Now, don't tell them they're spiritually hangry because that usually doesn't go over well. All right, but our hunger will always drive us towards what we are hungry for. You ever realize that? And so in Genesis 6, it was hunger and passion for God that drove Noah 
to build an ark in the middle of nowhere before there was even rain. In Genesis 12, it was hunger and passion for God that drove Abraham to leave his hometown and to go off to a foreign land. In 1 Samuel 17, it was hunger and passion for God that drove David to step out onto a battlefield and face a giant by the name of Goliath who was armed to the teeth. In 1 Kings 18, it was hunger and passion for God that drove Elijah to face 850 false prophets of Baal and Asherah. That took some guts. In Acts chapter 7, it was hunger and passion for God that led Stephen to preach the gospel of Christ to a crowd that then stoned him to death, and his last words were, Lord, forgive them. That is hunger, that is passion, that drives us to do those things. And unfortunately, in Hebrews 5.12, these Christians' lack of hunger, their lack of passion, caused the author to write this. He said, by this time, you should be further. You should have driven further than where you're at. You should be teachers by now, he says, but you still need someone to teach you the basics. And it's kind of funny, but just then to make sure that everyone fully understood what he was saying, he painted this very simple word image. He said this, He said, you need milk, not solid food. I got to imagine that the original audience, when they originally read that, they're like, what? He just called us babies? Oh, no, he didn't just. These people, bottom line, were just drinking baby bottles in their faith when they should have been eating cheeseburgers at this point. Now, just for a second, I'm going to be real transparent with you. If you think that I'm up here and I've got this all figured out and I'm pointing fingers, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, verse 12 perfectly describes my life for far too many years. See, I gave my heart to the Lord when I was 12 years old. I still remember I was at my home church. There was a special speaker there. I remember his name. He was speaking on the topic of end times of all things. And I remember during the night, he kept saying things like, you know what? Jesus could come back tonight. He could come back tonight. Hopefully I'll see some of you in heaven, some of you I probably won't. And he kept building this anxiety inside of me to the point where by the end of the service, when he gave this altar call, I turned to my mom, my mom, can I go forward to the altar and, and, and receive Christ? And of course she's going to say yes. She goes, yes. And all I heard was, yeah, because I was running down the, the, the aisle and I gave my heart to the Lord. But unfortunately, I did it out of fear. And we know that fear does not sustain relationships. Love does. Right? So fast forward, it wasn't until my mid-20s when I actually started to grow in my faith. And so basically, watch this. I was, even though I had been a Christian for 12 or 13 years, I was a one-year-old Christian 13 years in a row. So even though I gave the impression of maturity, I was anything but. I was a baby Christian. And really, the reason I began to grow is because something happened in my life. There was a catalyst that came about. You see, one day I came to church and I found out that my youth pastor had resigned. I was serving in the youth ministry. I was in law enforcement at the time and I was serving because I cared about the youth and he had resigned and moved on. And I thought, oh my goodness, who's going to stand in the gap? Who's going to help lead this ministry while he's gone or while we look for a new one? And so I stepped up during that time and out of necessity, I became so hungry for God. And it was because I'd finally put my faith into action. I finally decided to do something with my faith. And so for far too many years, I'd been sitting on my spiritual derriere in the church, in the chairs, drinking bottle after bottle of milk, when one day I finally decided to put my faith to action, and suddenly I was craving spiritual cheeseburgers. I wanted more. In fact, if you're taking notes, that's our last point here, is that our hunger will eventually develop us. It defines us, it drives us, and it develops us. It shapes us. 
And so you notice in verse 14, it says that solid food is for the mature. It's for those who have their powers of discernment. Watch this. Trained by constant use. Trained by constant use. And so in other words, they were constantly giving their faith a workout. They were taking it to the gym. They were using it, practicing it, training it. It was getting bigger. It was getting stronger. And because of that, they were constantly hungry. And so that's literally what happened in my life 20 years ago. The amazing thing is, 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 is that it developed a passion. It developed a hunger inside of me when I gave my faith a workout, when I put it to use, and it continues to this very day. In fact, it is remarkable because I get to be the very thing this author is talking about. I get to be a teacher now. I get to talk about it. 20 years ago, I was not ready. You don't hand a microphone to a baby. But because of that hunger and passion, it has grown me and it has developed me in so many ways. And you know what? Now when I teach, I'm just more hungry. I'm hungry for more. So here's what we're going to do for the last few minutes here. I'm going to leave you with real quick four practices that will help train your faith. These are four ways to ignite your spiritual hunger. These are four proven practices. Because remember, if you're here today and you're not growing spiritually, the question is, what is going on with your spiritual appetite? What is going on with your spiritual hunger? All right, and so when it comes to our spiritual appetite, we've got to try it, catch it, work it, face it. Let me say it again. We've got to try it, catch it, work it, face it. And so try it. Let's start here. How many parents we have here today? Real quick, raise up. Okay, and so uh, you guys remember the conversation, the argument that we have with our kids when it comes to them eating new foods? You know, it's like we try to get them to try vegetables, you know, like cauliflower. I don't want to eat it. It's yellow. Well, Twinkies are yellow. Eat your cauliflower. You know, and so we try to get them to eat, and, and, and sometimes they like it, sometimes they don't, right? I remember in my life, a couple years ago, I realized that I've told people all my life that I hate tomatoes, uh, and I never actually had a tomato, right? It's kind of weird how that happens, right? And so somebody put a tomato in my cheeseburger one day, and I loved it, <laughs> And so now I like them apparently, right? Psalm 34 tells us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Did you know you can't taste and see that the Lord is good if you're not willing to step out and try something new? That is like the perfect advertisement. God is saying, come on, just give me a try because you're going to see is amazing. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Step out of your comfort zone and do it. We keep, ex- we, we keep expecting the extraordinary in our life, but we're still busy doing the ordinary. Step out of our comfort zone. And so whether that's playing an instrument on the worship team because you've got music skills, but you've never put them to use for the kingdom, or maybe it's leading a grace group instead of just attending a grace group, or maybe it's starting a prayer journal, or maybe it's getting into spiritual disciplines where you fast and you pray for one of your meals or even one of your days out of the week. Whatever the case is, try something new and you will see your spiritual hunger come alive. So we got to try it. Second, we got to catch it. Everybody say catch it. And so I've got this friend who is crazy about Jeeps. He loves Jeeps. He has a Jeep. He sends me pictures of Jeeps all the time. Uh, he takes me off-roading in his Jeep. Even when he's out of town, he tosses me the keys and said, hey, man, drive my Jeep. He's got this modified Jeep. It's awesome. All right, you know the funny thing that's happened now is that I'll be driving with my wife somewhere, and I'll see a Jeep go by. I'm like, ooh, I like that Jeep. My wife would be like, since when do you like Jeeps? I'm like, I don't know, but I just love that Jeep. <laughs> His passion has literally rubbed off on me, right? He's constantly talking about Jeeps and loves Jeeps, and so it's rubbed off on me. Did you know that we are directly influenced by the people we surround ourselves with? I mean, we know that's true about our kids, but we forget that as adults. It's something called relational influence. Do you know that this is exactly what Jesus did? 
He recruited these 12 misfits. I shouldn't call them misfits. Disciples. All right, but they were tax collectors and zealots and fishermen. They, they probably didn't even like each other initially. But then over a course of three years, he did not send them to Bible college. He did not send them to seminary. He lived life with them. He relationally influenced them, and they went on to become pastors and missionaries. So my question is this. Are you surrounding yourself with people who are spiritually hungry today? Are you intentionally doing that? Are you in a small group environment? Are you in a grace group to do that? Because if you're not, you're missing out on one of the most powerful ways that God designed us to grow. And by the way, coming up, either you're in Olathe or Overland Park, August 25th weekend, there is a group link coming up. If you're not part of a grace group, that is the weekend to be here so you can be. Uh, And so don't forget to check online for that. Third, work it. Everyone say work it. Okay, so uh, real quick, for those of you that follow me on social media, you probably know this, but ever since I was a little kid, from the minute my dad took the training wheels off my bike, I have loved biking. I love cycling. I used to ride around my driveway for hours. My mom would have to call me in when it got dark because I just love cycling. And so the other day I'm at the DMV, uh, killing time, which is what you do at the DMV these days. And I opened up my phone and I looked at my cycling app, which tracks all my rides. And I was utterly shocked at the amount of miles I've put in this year already. In fact, just in the last month and a half. Now, I'm not saying this to brag. I have a point. Uh, but I have, since the beginning of June, I've put 575 miles in already. Right? And since the beginning of the year, I'm over 1,000 miles cycling already. And I want it, that's right on track for my goal. My goal was 2,000 for this year. All right, but here's my point. When I saw that, it hit me like a ton of bricks. No wonder why I'm always so stinking hungry these days. It's like I feel like a teenager again. I'm just eating everything I can get my hands on. The other night I woke up and I ate half a pop, half a box of Pop Tarts. Who does that? You know, my son's going to kill me when he finds out they were his Pop-Tarts. It's not good, right? But I'm always hungry. And so this the same thing happens with our faith, is that when we put our faith to work, we burn spiritual calories. And when we burn spiritual calories, we are hungry. We crave more. And so my question is, are you putting your faith into practice? Are you putting it to work? Whether it's an outreach or a mission trip or a serving opportunity, whatever the case is, you don't even have to pray about that because God told us to do those things. Are you giving your faith a workout? Are you doing something with it? You don't have to start up here preaching messages, but maybe you could start somewhere else where you're just giving it a workout, all right? And so stop by the Connection Center if, that, if that's you, if you want to get involved with that. And then last but not least, face it. Everyone say face it. James tells us in, in James 1, he says, consider it pure joy when you encounter trials of many kinds because it's producing a perseverance and a maturity within us. Think about this. How many times have we had trials in life when you look back and you go, wow, I really grew during that time. Like, it wasn't fun, but I really learned a lot. I grew during that time. You know, it's because God ignites a hunger within us during that trial so we grow closer to him, so we crave him, we have a hunger for him. That's how God does that. And so my only question for you is this. Are you facing trials today the way James tells us to? Consider it pure joy because you know it's producing something beautiful in you. Or are you facing trials in the flesh where you're getting angry and bitter and frustrated and you're missing an opportunity to grow? Because believe it or not, watch this, we have a choice. Not all trials grow you. You can either get bitter or you can get better, but we have a choice when we face trials in life. And by the way, if you're sitting here and you don't have any trials in your life right now, see me afterwards, I'll see what I can do. All right, and so let me close with this one thought. No one accidentally drifts into spiritual maturity. 
No one accidentally drifts into spiritual maturity. Just like you don't wake up one day and you're not physically fit or a good cyclist or any of those things, you have to be intentional. Maybe the reason we aren't growing spiritually today is because we're not doing anything that feeds our spiritual hunger, that ignites our spiritual hunger. We have to be intentional. We have to try something new, taste and see. We have to catch the hunger from others. We have to put our faith to work. We have to consider it pure joy, face our trials. Because listen, I promise you, God will ignite that hunger within you. And that hunger will define you. It will drive you. And it will develop you into who God wants you to be. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the power of your word today. Lord, I thank you that even we know that without the Holy Spirit, you sent the Holy Spirit to empower us. We can't do any of this without you. So Lord, I pray if there's people here today or in the venue or in Lath or online, Lord, that sitting there right now, that you allow the Holy Spirit to convict them. Lord, if they've not stepped out in faith, if they've not put their faith into practice, Lord, if they're not doing anything to stoke that spiritual hunger within them, Lord, they'd step out in faith knowing that you honor that. But Lord, ultimately, we can't do any of it without you. Lord, there are people in this world that need to see your grace. They need to see your unconditional love. And Lord, because we're still babies drinking baby bottles, we cannot reflect it until we mature and we start eating some solid food. So help us to grow, help us to mature, to be more like you so we can show the world how truly amazing you are. Grow us today. Ignite a hunger in us this very day. Lord, we ask this in your wonderful name. And everybody said, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you have questions or would like to contact us for prayer, please email us at info at visitgracechurch.com. For more information about our ministries, location, and service times, go to visitgracechurch.com.